I'm also excited this morning to introduce to you Rick Langston, who is the executive pastor at the Summit Church. Um, he has been a huge blessing to you through our church and through our collaborative. So we are a part of the Summit Collaborative. We were sent years ago. We were commissioned by the Summit Church here to Virginia Beach. And um, uh, Rick has played a major role over how many years? Wow. Thir 32? 32 years in ministry, and he's been investing in pastors and pastors and pastors of pastors. Um, and so this is a huge honor to have him come and speak to us. Uh, and he has been, again, a great blessing in my life and in ways that this you don't even realize um, as a church. And so, again, I'm so thankful for him and excited to, for you to hear the word that God has placed on his heart for Risen Church. So with that, would you give him a hand as he comes forward? Man. You know, we, a pop quiz over there. I wasn't quite ready for it. Uh, how long have I been doing what? What was the question? I wasn't quite listening, John. Well, it is a pleasure to be here with you guys today. Uh, like he said, being a part of the Summit Collaborative means as a church, we get to partner with new churches as they're getting started, but then we don't, uh, it's not like, you know, send and fire and forget kind of thing. They go out there and, and we like to keep those partnerships going because we really are strengthened in strengthening churches when we're all working together. So I know, I think John was just doing some stuff with some other churches in the collaborative this past week, and we're able to encourage one another and spur one another on in the things that we're doing. And so I get to do that more in my role. I have been there at the same church for 32 years, and I've given away all of my jobs to people who do them better. And so I've been freed up to spend more time with church leaders at other churches, at collaborative churches, and and so it's a privilege for me, because I've kind of known you guys from afar, to be able to be here today. Now I put faces to the work and to the life that's happening here. And I get to see what a beautiful view that you have in church. If you get tired, listen to me, just, you know, stare out there, contemplate the goodness of God and uh, his creation. Um, you know, however the Lord leads you. I'll, I'll, I'll... <laughs> um, so the, the, the passage today was one verse, but we're going to be in... Uh, going to Numbers chapter 13 for uh, a big portion of our time today, but it started with me with this proverb, Proverbs 28, 14. Now, you saw it one way on the screen, and you heard it read a different way, because there's two different translations that I'm familiar with. One is the English Standard Version, and I know that you guys probably hear preaching out of that version. Probably a lot of you use that, the English Standard Version Bible. And, but recently, in the last couple of years, I've started reading and doing a lot of my devotions out of another translation, the contemporary Christians. It's not contemporary. It's Christian Standard Bible. So, you know, if you're a standard Christian, that's the one for you. If you're speaking standard English, then the other one's for you. But in, in reading that passage this year, um, Proverbs 28, 14, which says in the ESV, blessed are those who fear the Lord. Uh, this one says, happy is the one who is always reverent, but the one who hardens his heart falls into trouble. And what caught my attention was, I have a, a picture in my mind of someone who's reverent. It means not shouting out at the guy who's up preaching as he's getting started, you know, trying to distract him with questions. It means, it means it's much more formal. It's like church as we think of in like in the, maybe the olden days, you know. Everybody sat quietly, or the pilgrims, they'd wrap you on the head, you know, the Puritans, if you uh, 
we're talking or falling asleep in church, that we have this sense of respect. Like at Arlington National Cemetery, there's a sign that says, silence and respect. That's, I think of reverence like that. So I don't think of somebody like, hey, I'm reverent, I'm happy. Um, so what does that mean? Because it'd be good for us to understand this because we want to be happy, right? And the other part of the verse talks about people who fall into trouble, and we want to avoid trouble. So being happy from this passage, from this verse, does mean being blessed. And it means just having a kind of a, a contentment in life that it permeates our experience. But what does it mean to be always reverent, which is the key? Well, a reverent person, like I said, you know, it's not necessarily somebody who's sitting and, and just being really quiet and, and respectful all the time. It is how we can be in our entire life, but it is based on having a view, a picture in our minds and hearts of God, who He is, how awesome He is, how mighty He is, how good He is. And that leads to us wanting to be with Him, know Him, follow Him, obey Him. So a reverent person is someone who's focused on God, His majesty, power, His total authority. A reverent person responds to Him in obedience. So someone who is always reverent is one who continually honors God in their thoughts, their words, and their actions. On the other hand, this passage says, but one who hardens his heart falls into trouble. So we're going to look at what it means also to have a hardened heart because we want to avoid trouble in our lives. Now, I'm not standing up here as some kind of example of a person who is always reverent. I certainly am not always reverent. And there are ways and times in which my heart might grow hard. But I think what we're talking about here is a general view of life, sort of a disposition or a direction that a person's life is tending towards. Um, it speaks to two different orientations. Those who desire and seek to follow God and be obedient to Him because they've had an experience with Him uh, that has changed them. And then those who are really on just a different path, a path of self-determination, which is all in many ways the way we're raised to figure out what we want to do and go do it and make your own, you know, be your own man, be your own woman, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, this independent spirit that we celebrate in our country. Um, but it can also lead to a hardness of heart that doesn't look to the things of God. Jesus described people like this in Matthew 15 when he said, these people honor me with my lips, but their hearts are far from me. So it's not an issue of whether you go to church or not as much as where your heart is and the where your heart is focused. So the question that we always should ask ourselves when we come to God's Word is, where am I in this passage? What does it have to say to me and about where I am? Where do I stand? Do I have a heart that is soft and reverent towards God, or has my heart become hardened? And the problem is, it's difficult to diagnose a hard heart in ourselves. It's very easy to diagnose it in other people. In fact, most of the time, I've seen myself in church over the years thinking, about people who should be hearing the message that I'm listening to instead of what it has to say to me. It's because just think of the word itself, hard heart. It means we've built up this wall of defensiveness to our eternal, internal being, and uh, we've gotten set in our ways, so much so that it's not that we're just resistant to change. We don't even see the change that's necessary. So in our story that we're going to go into today, we're going to look at it sort of a Old Testament case study 
contrasting what a person who is reverent towards God and those who have hardened their hearts, what the differences are between the two. And so hopefully, maybe there might be some things we identify with in these stories that will help us make that determination for us. And we're going to do that by looking at the life of a man named Caleb. Caleb was one of the children of Israel that Moses led from Egypt on the journey to God's promised land that he had promised them. And um, before we get over to Numbers, I'm going to let Caleb introduce himself from a later point in his life by reading to you from Joshua chapter 14. In the book of Joshua, it's a, about the, the people actually, the, the children of Israel actually taking over the land that they've been given. They're in the land, they're conquering the people that live there, and Joshua is leading them in that process. And it says in chapter 14, verse 6, the descendants of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb said to Joshua, you know what the Lord promised Moses, the man of God, about you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the Lord's servant, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to scout the land, and I brought back an honest report. But my brothers who went with me caused the people to lose heart. But I followed the Lord God completely. So on that day, Moses swore to me, he swore to me, Caleb, the land where you have set foot will be an inheritance for you and your descendants forever because you follow the Lord my God completely. Caleb goes on to say, as you see, the Lord has kept me alive these 45 years as he promised since the Lord spoke to Moses while Israel was journeying in the wilderness. Here I am today, 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was the day Moses sent me out. My strength for battle and for daily tasks is now as it was then. Now give me this hill country. So Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and, sent him, and gave him Hebron as an inheritance, and, and he went in and conquered the land, and Hebron still belongs to Caleb's descendants today. Caleb is 85 years old when he goes up to Joshua and asks for this land. And he says, this is the land where they said the giants live, and I'm ready to take it because I'm just as strong now, not only for battle, but for daily tasks. I still get the trash out. I still mow the lawn. I still take care of my family and do the things that I need to do. I am just as strong 45 years old. This is Harrison Ford in the last Indiana Jones at 80 years old showing it. I can still do all the things I did 40 years ago. And if I have to, I'll take my shirt off to prove it. I'm still just as strong as I was then. So I think that's probably why I'm sort of attracted. He's like one of my heroes in, 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 the, in the word, Caleb, because the older I get, the more I identify with him. And let's face it, I'm at a stage in my life where I don't ever have to ask for a senior discount. They are given to me before I even get within 10 feet of wherever I'm going. And getting older, we don't always, you know, it's hard as you get older to identify with, with the, the boasting of Caleb here because things get sore, they get tired, your, your body is just wearing out. You know, my expiration date is much closer, good sell-by date, is much closer to where it's going to be than it was 40 years ago for sure. Uh, you know, things start to just wear out. The memory starts to go. You know, I, uh, my wife and I, we joke about this all the time, like this is stuff that we forget on a daily basis. I, I like to order things from Amazon. Uh, it's really convenient. I don't have to go to the store. So if I think of something, I'm like, immediately I'll go. I'm like, I'll get that, and I need it tomorrow. So I get the one-day shipping. And then tomorrow comes, and it's like Christmas because I don't have any idea what's in that box. But I'm excited that it came. I'm like, what is it now? What's it going to be? But um, Caleb didn't have a problem with his memory. He remembered. 
he reminded Joshua of the promise that he had received 45 years ago. I was 45, I was 40 years old when this promise was made to him. And then it's here, it's being fulfilled this many years later because he remembered God's promise. He remembered God's faithfulness and he lived his life based on that knowledge. Caleb is the reverent man. Caleb is the one who is blessed because he fears the Lord. So let's go, let me, let me pray right there. And then we're going to look at the backstory, the, 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 the incident that he's referring to from, from 45 years previous in his life there in Numbers. But let's pray. Father, I pray, Lord, that as we go deeper into your word today, you would let it speak into our lives in a way that um, allows us to understand, first of all, your love for us, then your will for us, and then that we would our faith would be stirred up so that we would walk in obedience to you, not because we earn anything from you, but out of just the experience of your grace in the gospel. In Christ's name I pray. So uh, scholars think it was about the year 1446 when the Exodus occurred in the springtime that they had the first Passover. That was the 10th plague that, uh, that the Lord brought on Egypt as Moses kept asking him to Pharaoh to let our people go. And the firstborn in each family that didn't have the blood, toast, the, the, the blood of the, a lamb over their doorpost was killed on that night, that Passover night. And so finally, Pharaoh gave up and he said, fine, take your people and go. But Pharaoh hardened his heart. And soon after that, he changed his mind and he began to chase the people down in the wilderness. He had his, his whole army chasing them. And um, all the people looked at Moses and they said, this is your fault. They were there along the shore of the Red Sea and they had their backs up against the sea and they saw the, this army coming and they didn't have the weapons and the, the know-how and the power that they had. And they said, we're going to die out here. In Exodus 14, they said to Moses, is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you took us to die in this wilderness? What have you done? What have you done, Moses? And Moses said, do not be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation. And you know what happened next. If you've seen any of the animated movies or the... the um, the uh, divinely inspired version with Charlton Heston of the Ten Commandments, that God caused the waters to part and dry ground to appear there at the Red Sea. And so the people of Israel walked across dry ground to the other side. And then as the army of Egypt followed them in, God let the waters collapse back down on top of them and destroyed that entire army. And in Exodus, it says, that day the Lord saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord. They believed in him and in his servant Moses. And after that, they obeyed God and listened to Moses and never complained again. Now, that should have been true, but it wasn't true. They started complaining about stuff again, probably the next day. They spent their time complaining about the things that they were worried about, complaining about the things that they didn't have. Now, they were in a wilderness, and there was over a million of them because they numbered 600,000 men of fighting age. So we can figure there, oh, there was wives and children. There was over a million people in a wilderness. And I'll let you know that the Hebrew word for wilderness means that there were no food lions, there was no Wawa, there was certainly no Trader Joe's or Whole Foods, and so they had a big question on their minds, like, how, where are we going to find food and water to survive? 
Well, God provided that. He miraculously provided that. He caused water to come out of a rock. He caused water that was tainted and unpure become pure. So he met their needs for thirst. And he caused manna, this strange substance, to appear on the ground each morning that they could eat. And they could go out and they could gather it and they could prepare it and they could eat it and it provided all their nutritional needs. And still they complained. I mean, they really complained. In Numbers 11, it says, the riffraff among them had strong cravings for other foods. And the Israelites wept and said, who will feed us meat? We remember the free fish we ate in Egypt. Now, being a slave seems like a good deal because guess what? If you're a slave, you get free food. So you don't have to worry about that. The security of slavery sounds appealing to them. We remember the free fish and the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, garlics, but now our appetite is gone. Their appetite wasn't, was, was, you know where their appetite was gone? They were being fed. They had everything that they needed, but they didn't even want that anymore. Moses heard them weeping in their tents, weeping at the entrance of their tents, it says. Now, this is some pretty high-level complaining. I have 10 grandchildren, and uh, when kids don't get what they want, they have an innate-born ability to let you know about it. So as their grandfather, as they, they call me Poppy, as their Poppy, it's not my job to make them eat vegetables. When they're at my house, I'm going to feed them whatever they'll eat. But why? Because I don't want to listen to it. I'll send them home afterwards and their parents can listen to it because it's their job to raise them. It's my job to spoil them. We've got a great agreement going on. I get, they get to go out on date nights and I get to have kids that are happy because I give them whatever they want to eat. But children, while they complain, they're not the only ones. Children are not the only ones that whine and complain. We kind of grow up with that. And complaining is a tough habit to break. It's an easy one to get started and it's a tough one to break. So where does that come from in us? I think complaining comes from a, a sense of entitlement. It's because we believe there's something we deserve that we don't have. And that's it. We, we need it. And it becomes a need for us. They didn't demonstrate a lack of gratitude in what God's done for us. You know, as soon as God meets a need in, in my life, it's easy for me to focus on the next thing I need. So I always got a lot more prayer requests than I have praises. Well, that's just not a great way to live. And it's a sign of a hardened heart. But a sign of a heart that is reverent to God is one that is filled with gratitude. And you know, we think, we read a story like this, and we think, you know, if I saw God providing, miraculously providing food every day for me to eat, I wouldn't have complained like those people. Oh, oh, I beg to differ. Because you know what? God has provided you food every day to eat. I doubt anyone in here has ever been on the brink of starvation. Anyone ever in here has ever been on the brink of dying of thirst, real thirst. I know I haven't. And those things do exist in the world. There are people who die of starvation every year. So that's why I know that God has provided for me every day everything that I need to live. Our presence here kind of proves that, doesn't it? And yet it's so easy to complain. My wife and I, when we were first married, we complained about our cars a lot because they were fixed or repaired daily, even though they weren't all Fords. I mean, it was just like, it, I mean, we couldn't afford to get a car that was reliable. So, you know, so I was like, well, you know, we just can't afford it. And um, we really resented that. 
Until one day, I was just like, you know what? When we give our kids something, if they don't, they don't like it, we don't like that response. Like, we want our children to be thankful for what we give them. And who, you know who gave us these cars? In fact, literally several of those early cars, people in the church just gave us. And so it was hard a year later for me to be complaining about it and recognizing that this is a gift from God to provide for my needs. So it's not living up to some expectation that I have set that I think I deserve something more. But a heart that is reverent towards God and recognize this is always going to be grateful. Let me give you a, 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 if you don't memorize scripture, I want to give you a scripture to memorize because it tells you what God's will is for your life. And it's really easy. You can memorize three verses in one sentence. It's 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. And the first verse says this, rejoice always. The second verse says, pray constantly. And the third verse says, give thanks in everything. And then about the whole thing, it says, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Did you ever wonder what God's will was for your life? There, is, there it is. Rejoice, pray, and give thanks. Because people who have hardened their hearts are quick to complain and criticize, but people who are reverent towards God give thanks in everything. And that's the first thing that I would point out, that contrast between a person who has hardened their hearts and someone who has really surrendered to God and fears the Lord. Is there a sense of gratitude and appreciation becomes a part of our lives when we, when we really look at all that God has done for us. And then when we stop thinking about what God has done for us and we start looking at all the things that we don't have, that we want, or the things that aren't the way we, we would have them, or the people don't drive the way they should when we're on the freeway, or it, service is too slow at a restaurant, and it's so easy for us quickly to be caught up in this dissatisfaction and these complaints. That is a sign that our hearts have become hardened first to God, because a hard heart towards God will become a hard heart to other people. So that's the first contrast. Those who are reverent to the Lord have their lives characterized by gratitude. Now, we're finally jumping into the story here, Numbers 13. In fact, a little bit more to get just completely caught up to this, to this experience that Caleb has. By this time, now they've been on the road since the Exodus for about 15 months, and uh, a lot of steps happen. Uh, they've gotten the Ten Commandments. They've gotten the law. Uh, they've built the tabernacle. They've won a battle. Um, they're organized, um, and they're ready to go. They're on the edge of the promised land, ready to go. Less than a year and a half after they got started, they're ready to move in and take that land. So Numbers chapter 13, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses, send men to scout out the land of Canaan I'm going to give to the Israelites. Send one man who is a leader among them from each of your tribes. I think it's important to recognize that it was a leader that went from each of the tribes. This story is often referred to as like the, 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 refer, the 12 spies or the 12 scouts. But these were 12 leaders. They were selected because they were seen as people of influence among the tribes. They were, they were recognized by thousands of people as, as people who had authority and wisdom and leadership among those people. So that's important. These were just not just guys that were really good at uh, hiking. So they had, a, and they had a very specific assignment that Moses gives them. He explains to them, he says, they're going to go on this mission. And here's what they're going to do. They need to go into the land. They're going to go from top to bottom. They're going to scout it all out. They're going to make notes. They're going to see who lives there, how many people live there, what kind of people they are. Are they strong? Are their cities fortified? This is a reconnaissance mission. 
And they're supposed to look at the land. What's the land like? Is it fertile? Does it sustain life? And come back and bring a report. Moses says, be courageous on this journey. And, and while you're there, gather some of the fruit of the land and bring it back so we can see what we have to look forward to when we go into this land to take it. And they did that. They scouted the land. They spent 40 days. They went, went all over the territory. They got to know it. They explored it. They, they were bringing back valuable knowledge. And they found, a, they found a cluster of grapes that said it was so big that two guys carried it hanging on a pole between their shoulders. So the land was rich. They said it was a land flowing with milk and honey. And so they come back. The people are all excited. They, come, they gather around. They hear this report that, that they give to, to Moses in Numbers 13, 27 and following. It says they reported to Moses, Numbers 13, 27. We went into the land where you sent us. Indeed, it is a, man, a land flowing with milk and honey. And here is some of its fruit. However, the people living in the land are strong and the cities are large and fortified. We also saw the descendants of Anak there who were storied to be giants. However, there's a big but in the middle of that sentence that I don't like because they're like, look, it looks good, guys. Looks great. And yes, it, it, it's rich. But there's a big problem there. The, the cities are fortified. The people are strong. There are giants in the land. And they started to stir up the crowd and caused them, as Caleb said, to lose heart. And Caleb saw this happening. And so he spoke up. In verse 30, it says, he had to quiet the crowd. He said, hey, 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 everybody, listen up. Caleb quieted the crowd in the presence of Moses. Caleb's not even the leader. Moses is the leader. He's just one of the 12. Everybody quiet up. Listen to me. Let's go up now and take possession of the land because we can certainly conquer it. We can certainly do this. Where did that faith come from? Where did that belief that he had come from? Well, I mean, it came from seeing God's faithfulness from when they left Egypt up until that day, all the things he provided. But it also came from just believing the word of God. Because in Exodus, God had made this promise to them. In, verse, in chapter 23 of Exodus, God said this to the people. I'm going to send an angel before you to protect you on the way and to bring you to the place I prepared. I prepared. I will cause the people ahead of you to feel terror and will throw them into confusion. I will make your enemies turn their backs to you in retreat. I will send hornets out in front of you and they will drive the Hittites, Canaanites, and Hethites away from you. God was going to employ drone warfare to drive the people out of the land ahead of them. God had made all of these promises to them. This was the land they were exploring. And Caleb had the audacity, the courage to believe God's word. And so he said, hey, it doesn't matter who's there. We will certainly conquer it. Caleb had the courage of his convictions to stand up to the crowd. And that's the second contrast that I, I want to make, is that those whose hearts have grown hard because they're not seeing God and they're not being led by God, they're easily swayed by the crowd. And I've seen this happen. We see this happen all the time. Now, we say there's strength in numbers, and there can be, and it's certainly great to have others alongside of you on, as you follow the Lord, encouraging. We're supposed to encourage one another in the Lord. But it's also easy to, when we get swept up in fear 
to allow the fear of others to kind of take over and want to please others or go, and we just, it's just go along with the crowd. But a person who is reverent, who's really trusting in the Lord when he needs it, he'll have the courage to take a stand because he believes in the word of God. So Caleb says, let's go up. Let's take possession. We'll certainly conquer it. And the other 10 guys, they responded, we can't attack the people because they're stronger than we are. So they gave a negative report to the Israelites about the land they had scouted. Yes, it's good, but it devours its inhabitants. All the people and all the people we saw in it are, are men of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak. To ourselves, we seem like grasshoppers, and we must have seen the same to them. We are far too weak to do. We, we don't have the resources to do what you're saying we should do. Oh, man, that is easy for us to, to come to that point in our lives. It's really easy for churches to get to that point. When it becomes like the, what we're being called to do seems too hard, too big, and we only are looking at our own resources, which are often far too few. But when we remember to look to God and ask the question, is this what God has called us to do? It starts to make the decisions a lot easier. Because if God has called us to it, then surely we should do it. That's the third contrast. People who have hardened their hearts are driven by their fears. They look at their circumstances and they let their circumstances dictate their direction. But when we trust in the Lord, we're able sometimes to step out and do something that doesn't seem possible because we see a God who has called us to do it. I think this is really hard for us uh, to translate this to our lives today because we look at this story and we see, well, they had very specific instructions that God gave them. And so they should have certainly trusted that and obeyed and done that. But I, I, think in my, I think back in my life and what it took for me to really surrender my life to God. You know, I just, I thought about this between services. I really, did I mention that I used to live here? No, I didn't even mention that part, did I? Did I? Okay. Um, remember, remember the memory thing I talked to you about earlier, the short-term memory thing. So I was born in Portsmouth, Virginia, but I only lived there six months, and then we moved. And uh, then I went into the service in 1981 as a second lieutenant in the Army, and I was on my way to the transportation basic course that's at Fort Eustace. And I got married the day before I went in the Army, and so my wife and I drove across country and then moved here and started our lives out here. Well, I had grown up in church, and I thought I was a believer, and I thought I was following God. But to me, following God at that time meant believe in God and don't do bad things, and then you're pretty much in charge of everything else. And so I was pretty much setting the course and the path for my life. Got married, had kids, went to church some. Golf, church, golf, church. And um, after about three years... I could tell I was just going to lose it. It was not going well. I kind of had this. Those were the things that I felt promised me happiness in life. To have a wife, to have a family, and to have a secure living. And I had those things lined up. And man, something was still missing. And I was actually back at Fort Eustis. I was in the test pilot course for Army aviators there. And I was, I was by myself for four weeks, coming back to the, 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 to the place that I stayed going to school during the day, coming back there. And I was just there in that time. I'm like, 
I'm blowing it. My life is, I don't know what's going on. And I just prayed and I said, God, I give up. I just surrender. I, I've been trying to figure this out on my own and it's just not working. I've been doing the things I thought I was supposed to do. It's not working. It's like, whatever you want me to do. I just put my yes on the table and I surrendered. And that's what it meant for me to really begin to follow God. And I came back and I told my wife, I'm like, I'm going to church with you on Sunday because I got to figure this out. And I just started reading my Bible. And about a year, within the next two years, I came to the point that I'm like, I don't think I'm called to be in the army. I don't take this serious enough. This is serious business, but it, I just don't have a passion for what I'm doing. And so I just got out. And then we struggled to find what to do next. And just through a series of events, God finally led me to uh, feel and experience a call to work full-time in the ministry. But it was a long process, about five, six, seven years for me to get to the place where I was going to seminary and then had to go serve. And it was a, it was a tough road. And I had to kind of figure out how, how to do it along the way. But there are specific things God tells us as believers. Just read your New Testament. You'll find a lot of them. Love one another. Pray for one another. Care for one another. Use whatever gift God has given you to serve one another. So those of you who are like thinking about maybe going to the uh, weekender on Friday, You'd be thinking, well, what's it mean to be a partner in a church? You know, it's going to be a good place maybe to go and find out. What plan does God have for you like, for your life? You might not get a, a plan that says specifically move from this location to this location and do this, but you will learn about how to live your life in obedience to God. Because I'll tell you what, God's concerned about everything for you. You know, he, he, he has more care for the, you know, he makes the lilies of the field, the sparrows. He, he cares about you and the details of your life. But his vision for your life is an eternal one. It's not your career. It's none of those things that are going to be gone in eternity. So as parents, we want to raise our children with a view towards eternity. And as, as people in this world, we want to live our lives with a view towards eternity. Because that's our promised land. So these people, they're at the edge of their promised land. And uh, they rebel. They just flat out say they're not going to do it. And uh, that's the fourth contrast in the characteristics of those who have a hard heart with those who trust God. They just come up with their own plan. They go their own way. In, in chapter 14, they, they refuse what they've been asked to do. The whole community broke into loud cries, and the people wept that night. There's that group think. And the Israelites complained about Moses and Aaron and told them, if only we hadn't gotten out of the land of Egypt. They're complaining about their circumstances. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to die by the sword? Our wives and children will become plunder. There's their fear. And then verse 4, so they said to one another, let's appoint a leader and go back to Egypt. They came up with their own plan. And they were going to come up with their own leader because they certainly weren't going to follow a leader who was going to lead them where they didn't want to go. Which, you know, when you think about the definition of a leader, it doesn't really have anything to do with your desires, your preferences. If a person is in a position of leadership, and God's put them there, and you've been put in a position of following, those roles are pretty clear. It doesn't mean you can't ask questions. It doesn't mean you can't ex get explanations and understand why and where. But they weren't going to follow a leader that led them someplace they didn't want to go. They did not want to go out of their comfort zone. And they were not going to follow a leader who led them there. 
I think about that with churches too as well because I get the opportunity to preach in some churches where the average age is closer to mine and older and the numbers are, are really few. Because they've been set in their ways for so long, they've failed to continue to reach people. And they, they love the Lord, but they just don't know what to do. And it's like, they got to radically change things. they got to make some big, big changes to see God continue to bless them as a church. You know, you guys are at this really sweet spot as a church. Everybody knows everybody. But as you continue to reach this community, which has thousands of lost people, you might get to a place sometimes when you were thinking about the good old days when everybody knew everybody. But wouldn't it be great to see that multitude in heaven, that multitude that cannot be numbered worshiping God, and to ask the question, well, how, of course, how could we have known everybody? God loves so many people and wants to reach so many people. So there's going to be things, even, in you, even as you as a church follow him, that you're going to have, have to give up your preferences or surrender. And there may be something that was really good that you don't have anymore. But what's really good is to know and follow the Lord. Well, Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb, they, they begged the people. In verses 5 through 9, they literally just begged them. They said, please don't do this. Do not turn your backs on God. He will certainly give us this land. And the response of the people was to pick up stones, and they were ready to, to stone their leaders, to kill them, to get rid of them. But then the glory of the Lord appeared in their midst. God showed up, and there were some consequences. Those who had hardened their hearts fell into trouble when they heard they were never going to go into the land. They were going to die in the wilderness, God said. They would never take possession of that land, except for Caleb, the one who, got, who was faithful to God, and Joshua. Those were the only two who would someday enter into that land because they followed the Lord. And the people, they were, of course, they were upset about that. And they were like, well, we'll do it. We'll go. We're sorry. When they really saw the glory of the Lord, but it was too late for them. They weren't going to get to go in. And they died in the wilderness. But Caleb, 45 years later, saw God fulfill a promise to him that he was faithful. That's what we have to look to in this story. Because this is the gospel in this story. Even Moses' prayer for the people, because God said at first, I'm going to wipe them all out. And I'm going to put you in charge and we'll start all over. And Moses said, God, don't do that. We're kind of testing Moses. But Moses said, yeah, do that, God. He's like, no, don't do that. Pharaoh will hear about it. You let him out of Egypt by your power. And then they'll say, but you didn't have enough power to get them all the way there. Please let them live for your glory. And that's a part of the gospel. That the gospel is given, you know, it says that for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. God didn't just do it for us. He did it for his own glory. That he could redeem a people who were so far from him, who had hardened their hearts against him, who were considered to be his enemies, who have thought we know what's best for ourselves and we can be our own gods. Surely we can be as gods. And yet he had patience with us and he made that sacrifice of sending his son to die for us so that we would have that opportunity for deliverance from bondage, from slavery to sin, to follow him and then to submit to him every day and to let the gospel be alive in our lives every day. 
These people didn't do anything to save themselves but follow the Lord. Those who didn't completely follow him, they died in the wilderness. We don't do anything to save ourselves except for give our lives to Christ and receive what he's done for us. That's the gospel in this story, is that when Jesus came, he did everything necessary to deliver us to that promised land. He was the ultimate sacrifice. He laid it all down for us. He's proven that to us over and over again. So to wrap this up, I'll just go back and quickly mention if you're finding yourself a person who is critical and complains easily, has a tendency to just see kind of the negative and everything, and I've heard, you know, it's just kind of the way I'm wired. Ask that question. Maybe, you know, maybe my heart needs to be really broken. I need to recognize only God is worthy of my worship, and he has seen all that's wrong in me, and he's still loved me. I want my love to overflow to others because I don't have all the answers, but I can have a heart of gratitude for everything that God has given us. Are you easily swayed by the opinion of others? Do you, or do you know the word of God in such a way that you can take a stand when that conflict arises? Do circumstances get the better of you? Are you overcome by worry and, and anxiety? And that's something we all struggle with at times. And sometimes it's a really serious thing in life. But the antidote is to look at the power of God, that he has got our best interests at heart and trust him. And even if we have to remind ourselves that every day, And finally, are we obedient to seek and follow God's plan wherever it takes us, whatever he asks us to do, wherever he sends us? Have we put our yes on the table, a blank check that we let God fill in? Or do we have this set way we think our life should should pan out and we're just like, we're locked into that. We want God to just come and kind of bless that from the outside. I just want you to invite him in today. Let him examine your heart and reveal to you what it is that, uh, where you stand. Hopefully, uh, many of you, I'm sure, just want to, want to follow the Lord. You, you, you're so thankful for your salvation. You just want to continue to grow in it, and, and I'm sure you will. And others might be in a place where you're like, you know, I'm just kind of, this is new, and I don't, I don't know. I'm on a journey. Hang around with these people that are a little bit farther along and let them encourage you and, and teach you. And maybe some are just struggling with like, hey, I don't really like this, I don't like this, I don't like that. Maybe just repentance. You know, repentance is, is the door to fellowship with God. Let's pray together.